Hey there, I'm John Collins and welcome to Inside Intercom. Last week, Intercom celebrated its seventh birthday. And to mark the occasion, we're kicking off a new series here on the show. In the coming weeks, we want to live up to the name of our podcast a little more and take you inside Intercom by sharing more insights into the successes and failures to date that have formed who we are as a company. These stories may sound familiar if you've been to our Inside Intercom World Tour last year, where we shared the hard-fought lessons learned of growing a software company. So as we approach our eighth year, we think these stories are worth retelling because they touch on challenges that every company encounters at some point in their growth. Challenges that come when you're no longer a small startup, but you're not really a large company either. For instance, how do you scale your team as your company grows beyond your co-founders and early hires? As you speed up hiring to keep up with product growth, how do you attract the right candidates and more importantly, turn away the wrong ones? And what happens to say customer support or marketing when you go from having a couple of hundred customers to having several thousand of them? These are just a few of the questions we've wrestled with and which we'll be exploring in the coming weeks. If you don't want to miss out on any episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or your platform of choice. We'll be releasing World Tour Talks every other week or so. In the off weeks, we'll continue to bring you fresh interviews with leading product and growth thinkers in the industry that you're familiar with on this show. Kicking off the series today is our Director of Product Design, Emmett Connolly. He talks about a realisation he came to as the company expanded, that rapid growth is great, but it introduces new complexity at the individual, team and ultimately company level. So, what's the solution for addressing complexity, especially in a design team? Emmett's short answer, get really, really good at thinking in systems. I'll hand over to Emmett to let him explain what he means. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Maybe like most designers, I fancy myself a bit different, so I am going to start with a story that illustrates why you should actually ignore advice. It's the 1940s, and on tiny islands all throughout the South Pacific, some of the last hunter-gatherer societies on Earth are living very primitive tribal lives. And then, suddenly, one day, huge boats arrive on the island, and white men emerge from the boats. These men start digging huge paths all across the fields on the island, and after that, giant metal birds land on these paths, and cargo, massive boxes of cargo start to be unloaded. Food, equipment, tools, weapons, amazing new technology just floods the island. These were uh, US military troops landing on the island. Uh, World War II was spreading across the whole Southwest Pacific, and the Americans were establishing military bases to combat the Japanese. But the islanders knew nothing of this broader theater of war. To them, it simply appears that these strange visitors first engage in these bizarre rituals that they can see, so like marching about, building monuments and so on, and then deliveries of amazing new technology just magically appears. So the war ends and the troops leave, and of course the flow of goods dries up with them. So what are the islanders to do? Well, they do the obvious thing, at least to them. They set about recreating the conditions that led to the successes that they had just witnessed. So they dig their own long airstrips in the dirt and they build control tower huts out of bamboo and they build full-scale replica airplanes out of sticks and twigs and they march about like troops carrying fake rifles 
and then they wait for the goods to arrive. Of course, the goods never did arrive, no matter how many fake airplanes they built. And the reasons are really obvious to us from the outside. Simply emulating the external properties of some success that you witness isn't necessarily going to bring about a repeat of that success. Or in other words, just doing what you see someone else do won't necessarily work for you. So that's why I'm kind of hesitant uh, to engage in too much uh, advice here tonight. Instead, I am going to tell you some of the things that I have learned while running the product team at Intercom, some of the product design team at Intercom, some of the things I have come to believe. And a lot of my focus actually in that time has been less maybe than you would expect on building the machine, like the products that we create, and more on building the machine that builds the machine, like our team. Which is a surprisingly tricky thing to do because, I mean, where do you even start? Where do you go to learn what happens behind closed doors in these very secretive companies that we admire that make great products? You certainly can't look to your peers because if you ask them, they're all going to tell you that everything is going great, that they're killing it, they're crushing it, they're changing the world. Uh, I do not think I could take reading another Medium post about our amazing design journey towards our product launch. And yet some days, we at least are struggling just to get the basics right. So you start to ask yourself, what are we doing that's wrong? Why, why aren't we doing better? The truth, of course, is that these people are lying to you. <laughs> They are lying to you. And more accurately, they are post-rationalizing all of these design decisions that they supposedly made while developing the product. And they're leaving out all of the ugly stuff that really happened. I have been really fortunate, I think, to work on some of the best product design teams and alongside some of the best product designers in the world. And let me tell you, the real truth of what happened was that in every single one of those cases, it was a near total clusterfuck. Things were a mess. Always, in every case. Yet nobody is writing Medium posts about, you know, how after months of toil and confusion and anger and infighting and despair and dead ends and exhausting effort, we are honestly just fucking relieved to get this piece of shit out the door and move on with our lives. <laughs> I would read that post. I mean, don't get me wrong. So a big problem, this is a problem, let's be honest, in our industry today. And the problem really is that we only get to see like 5% of each other's work. We only get to see the output. And this creates problems. It can, it can lead to imposter syndrome. It can lead to people feeling pretty crap about their own work. Certainly, it leads to just lots and lots of different people making the same mistakes again and again and again. And so that is the first thing I would say to you. Anyone that really tells you that everything is just perfect is almost certainly lying to you. I, I guess there is another possibility, though, and that is that they're telling the truth, but they're actually just spinning their wheels. They're not really getting anywhere significant. And the reason I say that, that is because the defining characteristic of a startup is progress. It's this ongoing and constant change and evolution and improvement and iteration and these things are all good. They're really good. They're a sign of success. But if this constant change is happening, it stands to reason that how you work needs to constantly change too, just to, just to keep up. So the real truth is, as soon as you have like, solved a problem with how you work, you haven't truly solved that problem, and, and then you're completely done with it. 
It really just means you have just unlocked this new level of problems which you will then need to go and solve. Uh, and, and maybe that sounds like a little bit depressing at first, I don't know. But honestly, once I made peace with this idea, things got a lot easier. It's okay not knowing what's going to happen next. It's okay knowing that you're going to have to iterate your way along, that you're never going to reach this point where you're like, we're done, we're all set up now. And in many ways, it's not unlike being a designer. You know, you have a hypothesis, you put it out there in the world, you observe how it works, you iterate, and you just rinse and repeat that process, and you keep getting better and better and progressing. So I think on many, many levels, it's all about progress, whether you are like an individual level, like a designer or a team or a company, or even, I would say, if you really think of the broader context here, everything that we, all of us, do collectively that creates this thing that we call technology. I mentally refer to this quote quite a bit because uh, I think it's a really good reminder not to get too sucked into the minute details of what we might be designing at any given time. Whether you are designing a chair or a product or a team, it's really, really important to, to situate it. So now I'm going to just step back for a second and look at this kind of wider context that we're all operating in. My title for this talk is Design in Interesting Times, and it's a take on the old Chinese expression, may you live in interesting times. And if you've heard of that expression, you probably know it's meant as more of a curse than a blessing. The idea being, you know, interesting times are generally, when you look back on them, we're full of like turmoil and strife and change. But let's face it, we do live in interesting times today. I don't know if you've looked out the window, but there's a lot of crazy shit going on out there in 2017. And technology has a big part to play in this. There is no way that you can consider design or technology to be separate or removed from all of this upheaval that we're seeing throughout the world today. I really think that actually a lot of the problems that we're seeing out there are because change is happening at a rate at which society is, just can't keep up. We've got these 19th century institutions that are really, really struggling to cope with the 21st century problems being thrown at them by this fast-changing, complex, connected, fast-moving world. So we see traditional journalism really struggle to adapt to this new definition of news in the age of Facebook. Our weather systems are going haywire as a result of this massive globalized trade system that we've built. And some nations are tearing themselves apart as the planet becomes more connected, but somehow countries are becoming more divided. So technological progress is good, but it also creates instability and it increases complexity. Or to put it maybe more poetically, can you guess who said it? <laughs> Nobody knows exactly what's going on, people. But it's true, I feel like it's getting harder than ever to keep up. It seems like everything out there is speeding up. So why, why is that? Well, let's look at the way that the world has changed over long periods of human history, see if we can learn something from that. Okay, this is going to be a slight simplification, but for a very long, long, long time, not a lot happened in the world. There wasn't a lot going on. You know, for many millennia, humans lived as hunter-gatherers, not unlike those folks that we saw, those Pacific Islanders earlier. And the notion of progress or things changing rapidly really, really wasn't a thing at all. 
But then a chain of events started to unfold quite slowly at first, but then changes started to happen more and more frequently. So 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution allowed hunter-gatherers to settle into villages, and a lucky few people got to spend less time on subsistence living, and thus have more time to spend on other pursuits. And some of those pursuits led to them inventing new things. So a few little gentle changes started to happen. Fast forward to about 2,000 years ago, and things are still moving slowly, but over many centuries, paper and gunpowder and printing emerged. Now it's the 1700s. The steam engine is the animating force behind the Industrial Revolution. Factories and trains are now possible, and we start to pick up more speed. 1800s, electric batteries, photography, refrigeration, the internal combustion engine, bicycles, plastic, dynamite, the telephone, light bulbs. We're moving faster now. Things are really picking up. 1900s, airplanes, the assembly line, television, jet engines, radar, the atomic bomb, microwaves, transistors, computers, solar power, nuclear energy, satellites, microchips, lasers, human spaceflight, the internet, genetic engineering, cloning, Google. Things are moving faster at this point than at any period before in human history, all the way up to today. Smartphones, AI, self-driving cars, Tinder, if that is your thing. Uh, you know, we, we, we are now careening along at a pace never before experienced in the history of humanity. Whereas before, step changes came over many millennia. Now they seem to be happening like every year or even more frequently. It's hard to make sense of. What's going on here is we have achieved exponential growth, this famous hockey stick effect. And there are all sorts of knock-on effects that come as a result of this. Now, in general, we consider these up and to the right charts to be good news, right? For example, here is what global GDP looked like since the Industrial Revolution, which has allowed world population to grow in a similarly massive way. And that has led to world energy consumption going up which leads to global CO2 levels going through the roof, which relates to the number of species going extinct. So clearly, some of these things are good, but some of them are not good, some of them are bad. Uh, and it's not a coincidence that all of these charts are roughly the same shape. They aren't all directly causal, but these things are all definitely connected. Exponential change in one area, particularly in technology, triggers second-order exponential changes in all sorts of other areas and in ways that we could just never have predicted just by looking at the original technology. And this actually seems to be an inherent property of technological progress. Let's bring this back down to Earth. Here is one final chart. This is Intercom's growth as measured by annual recurring revenue. So yay, this is one of these happy charts. This is a good news chart, at least it is for us. We were happy about it, but let's remember what we just learned. This simple little white line is going to lead to all sorts of dramatic changes, at least for those of us inside of Intercom. And in many ways, it already has. You know, growth unlocks all sorts of good things, like new people hiring, new teams forming, new products, but also feature requests and bugs piling up and inconsistencies appearing. And in fact, for most companies that follow this kind of growth curve, the default path for the product is towards complexity. It's almost like a natural law of the universe or something. As the product gains mass, 
complexity increases logarithmically. I honestly, honestly struggle to think of a single mature product that is both powerfully flexible and elegantly simple. Now, the reason that most products succumb to this state is actually pretty obvious. The more you progress along this kind of path of, of nominal success, the more moving parts you need to keep track of, the more everyone needs to stay in sync. So simple terms on the product design team at Intercom, the things that worked for us when we were four people and we could just sit around a single coffee table totally broke and fell apart when we hit eight people. And then the same thing happened again when we hit 12 people just inside of a team. So as you progress past these places where you feel comfortable, people start to make decisions that are independently totally excellent rational decisions based on the information they have available to them, but taken in total, start to lead the product in all sorts of inconsistent different directions. Uh, I want to give you a real example. Uh, you can send a message to your users using our Engage product. Let's say you want to announce a new feature. And they can click on one of these emoji here to let you know how they feel about it. Educate, things are similar but slightly different. You got this question that we frame it with, and then you click the sad face, you get this follow-up question for more info. In respond, here the emojis show up inside our messenger, and they're inside this kind of box inside, in line in the conversation, not as a separate message. And then we also have a bot in our messenger who can suggest answers to simple questions. Here the emojis are in the card again, but the follow-up works differently. Now, taken in isolation, you might say these are relatively small problems. The real broader problem here is that this is a death by a thousand cuts type thing. If we let this slide, before we know it, the product is just going to be riddled with inconsistencies just like these. And then it's going to be confusing and it's going to be difficult to use. In a case like this, we would have like four different code bases to maintain. That means four times as many bugs. All four of these teams might need to talk to each other if anything needs to change. But in reality, they're not going to really. So things are just going to diverge even further. So clearly, there's a relationship here between progress and complexity. And again, like I don't think this is just about emoji buttons. That's a very trivial example. But I believe that this trend applies to technology and the wider world in general. As things speed up and get more complex, they somehow start to also break down fall apart a little. But that doesn't mean for sure that we should just accept it. So now the question becomes, how do we break out of this pattern? And my short answer to that is that we need to get really, really, really good at thinking in systems, thinking in systems. And I'm going to tell one little story to explain what I mean by that. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, a truck driver named Malcolm McLean had a problem. His livelihood depended on his ability to quickly and efficiently move cargo from point A to point B. But every time he reached a port, things just ground to a halt. The stevedores would unload all the bags and different sized wooden crates and sacks from the back of his truck and then put it on the dockside and then carry it up onto the ship and arrange it there and then come back for more. And especially at larger scales, it was like messy and inefficient and really slow. So Malcolm had an idea. His idea was to come up with a standard way of moving his entire trailer from the truck onto the ship. He designed a system of trucks with standard metal removable containers on the back of them, standard port side cranes that could lift them off the truck bed, and ships with standard 
container hulls that could hold these containers while optimizing them for space. And crucially, really, really crucially, he made those standards available royalty-free to the entire world, like effectively open sourcing them. Because he knew and understood that having his system adopted as widely as possible was key to its success. Malcolm McLean had invented containerization. The cost of moving goods around the world was reduced by more than 90%, which unlocked all sorts of new possibilities and advances in global trade. This is the reason why you can go and buy blueberries in January in Tesco, but it's also why you can have an iPhone. This system changed the world that we live in. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So often building software can feel messy and inefficient, kind of like that big pile of crates on the, on the dock side. And especially, as we all know, as projects get bigger, they just become more and more difficult to manage and keep track of. So people building software have come up with lots of ways of dealing with this. One example is the service called Docker. Docker actually adopted this concept of containerization to tackle a problem that software engineers had of moving their code from one environment to another environment. Whenever they moved, all the dependencies changed and their code would inevitably break. And the Docker solution is a bit like shipping containers, actually. Instead of moving all the contents and kind of hoping for the best or having to go in and fix it every time, you move the whole self-contained environment. It's quicker and it's simpler and there's just less stuff to hold in your head at once. You could also think similarly about object-oriented programming. It's simply this way of modularizing code into chunks that are manageable and easy to reuse. And in all of these cases, Malcolm McLean's containerization, Docker, object-oriented programming, the solution is to establish a system. Having a reliable, standardized system allows us to abstract ourselves away from all of the messy details that we might get caught up in, to zoom out to a level of granularity that we feel comfortable engaging in. So this raises a, a pretty obvious question. 
how might we apply some of these concepts that seem to have worked in other areas to how we build products, to the world of product design? What might object-oriented design look like? Well, actually, a bunch of people in the industry are in the process of figuring that out right now. Design systems is this nascent but fast developing way of thinking about how to design products in a more abstract, modular way. I should say that design systems in some form have been around for many years. Graphic designers have come up with systems and rules about how to create signage or branding for a long, long time. And people building websites have adopted this idea for many years, coming up with like pattern libraries of reusable components so you can very quickly kind of knock together a consistent UI. By the way, I should say, if engineers love their shipping container analogies, designers really, really love their Lego analogies. Because these templates are a bit like building with Lego bricks, right? You don't have to design each part from scratch every time. You can take one of these bricks and another and a, stick a bunch of them together. So for example, you could take a title and a paragraph and a button and stick them together. And you can say, hey, that's our header now. But as we saw with the intercom emoji example earlier, just having a common set of blocks to build from isn't quite enough. You can still take all these individual blocks and put them together in batshit crazy ways that don't make sense. It's entirely possible to have beautifully consistent rounded corners and drop shadows and padding on all of your buttons, but for your products to still be a total mess and not make sense. So what if we take this idea further, pushing it a little bit? Uh, and that's what we've been trying to do at Intercom. We've been trying to take this idea further by actually capturing the meaningful parts of Intercom and encoding them as objects that we can use to build new designs, to make new designs. So what does that mean in practice? It means that a designer doesn't just have like a sketch template full of buttons and headings. They have a sketch template of Intercom stuff, like conversations and messages and articles and customers. These are things that are actual concepts inside of the Intercom product, not just abstract UI widgets. And what's more, we have code snippets for rendering these intercom objects. We have very precise language that we use to refer to them. All of our help docs explain them using the exact same language. So we have the same concepts from code to customer all the way through. And this makes everything a lot simpler. And here's why this is important. Even as we progress and we speed up and more and more people join, the conversation stays fairly simple. When we talk to each other, we're using the same language. There's not a lot of ambiguity, not a lot of confusion. Designers don't need to know every little detail of what every other designer is doing and building and keep up to date, which can sometimes even feel like a full-time job. Instead, they just have to know and trust that there is a set of objects available to them, and they can build their designs using them. We are actually still, relatively speaking, a small company, and trying to build multiple products at once like we're doing is arguably crazy. We are prime candidates for everything to just fall apart and turn into a big incoherent mess. So this design systems approach is, I feel, key to our potential success. Like I said, I can't even say for sure if it's possible, but I'm damn well going to try and prove that we can make Intercom simple and powerful at the same time. Now, I wouldn't be staying true to the spirit of this event if I stood up here and I was like, hey, yeah, we've got this nailed and it's working perfectly and it's all great. At the moment, we are not really even close to having this fully rolled out across all levels and all objects across everything. 
But that is okay. We have a plan. We know how we intend to tackle this, and we're starting to doing it. And we may have to change the plan, and that'll be okay too. That seems to be the way that progress works nowadays. So I want to leave you with just two simple things. One is a statement. You should think of your product as a system from the very beginning. Then building a design system around your core product concepts will really help to keep things nice and simple and manageable. I know that sounds like ominously like advice, so feel free to uh, ignore it if you really want. The other thing is a question, and it's this. More broadly speaking, can these deep, complicated problems that we face in the world today be addressed by systems thinking? You know, whether we like it or not, everybody here in this room is part of an industry that is the primary cultural force driving massive change in the world today. Do we not bear some responsibility in all of this? Look, I love technology, I do. But my suspicion is that despite all of its merits and wonders, technology has also created a whole bunch of problems for us. And I'm not convinced that the solution to all of these problems is more technology. I'm not even sure it's more design, and I'm a designer. So, But I do know something. I do know that the world is not slowing down anytime soon. I have gotten all of this way without mentioning AI or self-driving cars or whatever comes next. I do know that whatever comes next, it's going to involve grappling with some complexity. When it comes to complex systems, the economist F.A. Hayek suggested that we should think of ourselves less as craftspeople trying to achieve a very specific outcome, and maybe more like gardeners trying to cultivate an environment for healthy, sustainable growth. Despite all of its complexity, the system is not rigged against us. We just need to learn how to work with it, how to tame it, how to guide it. Maybe how to be a little bit more like gardeners. So that is it. May you all design in interesting times. <laughs>